Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, now maybe you can see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow They have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really, ask yourself that. Welcome to How She Really Does It, a place where inspiration and possibility meet. From coal miner's son in Virginia to bank president and CEO, and for the past 18 years, Don Green has been the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. Don is known as one of the great leaders in the personal development field, committing professional guidance to the betterment of others. Don is the author of Everything I Know About Success, I Learned from Napoleon Hill. Today, Don and I will talk about success why some people have it and others do not, and how you can create more success in your life. Don, hello and welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. And first off, can you talk about, and I know you mentioned this in your book, but can you explain to my listeners how you define success? Yes, I sure can. Um, I taught a a course called Keys to Success in University of Virginia. I actually organized a three-hour course, presented it to the uh, college people and told them, I said, this is material I've been involved in all my life. I think it's important. And they reviewed it and got back in touch with me and said, yes, we think it's worthy of a three-hour credit course, especially to the business department, and said, uh, we will initiate it into our studies if you will teach it. Well, I was a bank president. I said, well, I can teach it at the nighttime, and, uh, except I don't want money for it. And they said, well, you we can't do that. we got to pay you. <laughs> and so they paid me, and I and I, they paid me, and I uh, uh, simply uh, uh, signed the check and, re- and return, returned it to them. So, um, um, uh, and that that was that was the uh, when you said success, that was the first thing I would ask the students was, what did they what did they think uh, success? And of course, almost wholly, they think it's money, mm-hmm. and uh, which is a probably uh, most people that would be on their mind. Oh, he's they got a lot of money. They're successful. Well, you'd have to include the drug dealers in that. <laughs> and uh, so to me, is uh, success is it's pretty simple. Uh, I remember Ben Sweetland's uh, statement that 
Success is a journey and not a destination. It's what you become during the process. And to me, as you can consider yourself successful when you can give back, when you're in a position financially, educational-wise, time-wise, or whatever, that you can make the, make a difference. And to me, that's a, uh, a that's my definition of success. Someone may define it as when they got a million dollars in the bank or when they got a new house built or when they graduated from college. But, see, I don't think we ever want to say we've arrived. And, and, and remember the song, uh, the lady's song, Is That All There Is? Mm-hmm. Uh, because... There should be always something else out there in front of us that challenges that we can make a that we can make a difference in the lives of others. Well, Don, I have a question. Do you think that's why when people do when they get that million dollars or they get that job and they make a certain amount of money that they've always longed for, that when they get there and they get so disappointed because um, their life really hasn't changed. They they may have more money in the bank, but how much has their life really changed? They're not a better person, are they? No, no. Success is from the from the inside out. The outside simply reflects what we're on the inside. So if you put a if you put a suit on a monkey, it's still a monkey. <laughs> uh, that's about as good as, well as I can explain it because it's what we are inside that what counts. And if we and if our only goal is to get a certain amount of money or get a house. And I think that's the reason you see so many so-called celebrities or whatever. Mm-hmm. They have a harder time maintaining their position. Uh, they simply reach a plateau and they fall off because they don't have anything out there to challenge them. They don't have anything that's a passion. And they're not. And I'm not saying that as all of them because there's a lot of them. A lot of that makes a lot of difference to their charity work, to their with uh, with the undeveloped countries and so forth, and the medical field and and so forth. And the reason they do it is. They learned early that the old principle of sowing and reaping, you've got to sow something to get something other back. You know, I said you can use the analogy of a garden. If you decide, I'd sure like to have some corn today, you can go buy it. But you can't go to the garden and get it if you've not planted it. So I think that's the way we do things is we get satisfaction out of it. To, I mean, me, as it absolutely thrills me to death when uh, a, a, a student of mine uh, from uh, 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 Afro-American, he used to bug bug me. He would come in the bank and want to talk about this and that. And all he was was a student in my class. But I inspired him. During Christmas, he sent me a $1,000 donation. He sent me a $1,000, told me to give it to the college. And he sent me a check to buy 10 books. And I know his story. You know, he said he had two brothers in prison for drugs. Dad ran away. And uh, the mom had five children to read. But... See, he got inspired, and while he only gave me a thousand dollars and a thousand to the college, uh, that was tremendous uh, good feeling to think that you influenced someone. Because he's told me, he said, I remember you telling us that you could consider you successful when you got to where you could give back. And he mm-hmm. told me he sent me a picture of his house he bought in the Merlin area. He's working in Washington D.C. He said. This might not look much like much of a house, but he said, I'm the only person in my family that ever owned their own home. And to me, it looks like it's a nice house. But uh, see, that makes a difference to me. I mean, we have we deal in lots of big numbers, being a bank president and what have you. But sometimes it's the little things that jump out at you the most and that you see where you've made a difference in it. And to me, is, I mean, I could never, I could never get tired of it. Having a kid work for me ends up 
going through school and ends up with a job in, in as a pharmacist or one going off to medical medical field. It started off when this had to get a work permit for them at age 14 before they could come in and use my typewriters and computers and so forth. But to see them turn out that way, and it's just a, it's a, it's a good feeling. It's kind of hard to describe, but I don't see how you could ever get tired of doing something like that. Isn't that really rewarding when you can see it how is, the impact? It it it, 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 abs- it absolutely is. And I mean, how could you quit doing something like that just because you're a certain age or you got a certain <laughs> amount of money? Or people say, won't you spend your money? I said, got everything I need. Mm-hmm. The house that you've lived in for, what, 30 plus years? Yeah, since 1976, I believe it was. Yes, yes. <laughs> Same wife of 52 years. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, how many houses do you need? How many cars do you need? Things don't make us happy. We think they might do it for a little while. Uh, uh, but uh, they don't. Uh, just things don't make us happy uh, because it's always something more. You know, if I had a better car, and then all of a sudden we see somebody that's got a newer car or a bigger car or a more expensive car, and uh, and we're continuously grasping for some thing to make mm-hmm. us happy, and it's, and it's not going to happen. And doesn't happiness come from our insides? It does, and I said our outside reflects what it is. I, I won't mention any names, but one of the famous uh, sports figures um, ended up on uh, ended up on drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and making big, and you can figure out who it is. He's making multi-million dollar contract. And I read an article by a psychologist that wrote on him, and he said, "This guy, he got, he went into, the, he played football, he he did his thing, he he was a good performer, and he left. He never associated with the other players. He never, he didn't belong to the fellowship of Christian athletes. He didn't associate with them outside of the field. So he kept his same friends." He went back to the same area he's involved in, got involved in illegal activities or what the nature was, ended up with a prison term. His so-called friends back there that he went back to, they ratted on him because federal authorities, they like to get a big name because it sends a good, it sends a good message. You know, it's kind of like an in banking. If the bank president sends still to $100, they like to send to jail. And if a teller does it, a low-paid employee does it, it's no big deal. It's the same crime, but it's a, who commits the crime that, that gives them the publicity and all. But the guy that wrote the article, he said, it appeared the guy had all the trappings of success. He had the salary. He had the big money, the bonus, the Ferrari, three, four houses or ever what. But said, on the outside, he had definitely changed because he had everything that said success. He never changed inside. Mm-hmm. So I have a question because you referred this in your book, uh, Everything I learned about success, I learned from Napoleon Hill. When you were young, weren't you on a quest to make money? Yes, but then it was a necessity because I, up to a certain ages, I, 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 I thought that was it. You know, I want, uh, I want the Mercedes, I want the gold Rolex, and, and I want the money. And I will admit that I was driven. I was driven because my dad was a coal miner, and I never had the nerve to say, Dad, can I have $10 mm-hmm. or $5? He would have given me a lesson on life and tell him, get the lawnmower and go out and mow somebody's yard or you, or you cut some Christmas trees or do something or another, wash some cars. Uh, you, you know, he'd, have, he'd want you to do something or another or go pick up pop bottles. And I remember picking up pop bottles walking uh, probably that next to town six, seven, eight miles 
walk one side of the road with a sack, picking up pop bottles, and then cross over and walk back home, though, and, you know, usually end up with maybe most of the time less than a dollar. But it was big. It was big money. Mm-hmm. It was big money, and I'm reminded. I'll do a book on finance sometime. And I remember of Bill Simon, who's the CEO of uh, Walmart. He made almost ten million dollars last year. Mm-hmm. He said that his first job, he made two ten an hour working in a restaurant as a dishwasher, and he said it was a great job. He said because it was his first job, mm-hmm. first job of making money. And I and I felt that I felt that way with everything that I did. That uh, it was pumping gas or washing cars or driving the school bus for 75 bucks a month when I was going to call it anything. I said, anything I, I was as enthused about as if I was making a million dollars because I thought I was uh, doing something other and knowing that I wasn't going to be doing that all my life, which I think is truly important. I knew there were better things out there. And so it sounds like with your mindset, it wasn't, you didn't use it as a defining moment of, oh, this is all that's possible. It was more of, this is part of my journey on this on this path that I'm taking, and it's going to help me get to the next step. I've noticed that working in restaurants, and I put an example in it. I was I was uh, meeting with the author uh, Jeffrey Gittimore, who's a good friend of mine down in Charlotte. He wrote all the little sales books on, on Bible on sales and so forth and so on. He's read numerous bestsellers, and and uh, I checked in at, at a hotel, and and uh, I was meeting him the next morning, and so I went in to get a bite to eat, and a little girl waited on me. Her name was Brooke. And I said, oh, Brooke, you seem awful happy and all. And uh, I said, and uh, she was a good waitress. And I said, uh, uh, I bet you're not going to be doing all this all your life. And she said, how do you know? And I said, you've got such a wonderful attitude. She said, this is just a pit stop. Mm-hmm. Say so she was going to school. So she was looking beyond that job. But if you, I would say if she was still doing that in 20 or 30 years, she wouldn't have that wonderful attitude because she'd feel like she's in something dead end. So, you know, if it's a, it's a step along the step along the way, you know, you're going to keep a, you're going to keep a good attitude. And, uh, uh, so that makes, to me, that makes all the difference in the world. It, it, you're doing something that's temporary, you know, you're on your, you're on your way. And that's the main thing is because it's what drives us. And we always got something else out there to look forward to. It's kind of like planning for a vacation. Most people get more enthused about the planning <laughs> for vacation. They do the actual vacation. <laughs> And I mean, I've noticed that, you know, they get all enthused about the, about the, about the vacation. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's the same way with life is, uh, uh, if, whether it be, be, uh, sitting down, I remember studying of a night, one night a week and then two nights and then three and four to get a college degree. And I was working, I was working 60 hours a week. So I was taking night classes and I went in the office and I found out they see I tell you, takes 120 hours, semester hours, you got to have this many hours accounting, you got to have this many in business and what have you. And I got a list of them and wrote them all down. And I couldn't wait. Every time, I didn't wait till I passed the course because I knew it was going to pass. When I enrolled in that course, I drew a line to it. I kept drawing lines to it. I drew lines to it. And I got down to where I've only got four uh, courses left on there. And I enrolled and I knew I was going to be graduating in May and getting that, getting that college diploma. And I, and I drew the lines out. And I mean, every time I drew a line, it just gave me a, it just gave me a feeling just like I'd won the lottery. Uh, and, uh, uh, that, and actually that's when, that's when my whole life's been. And so Don, would you say that the, that power of belief and that mindset of, of looking at this job as this is just one step, it's a pit stop into the next one is the, is a big reason for the difference between people who become successful and people who do not. Yes, Gordon. There's a 
you know, I, we've all heard that statement. People say things, saying, say, uh, uh, well, I believe it when I see it. Mm-hmm. See, they got it just backwards. You got to believe it first. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, the line in the Bible, Job says, uh, without a vision, my people perish. We should see where we're going to be, not where we are. Mm-hmm. And that's what drives us, drives us. We have to have that inner, inner vision to see ourselves as a doctor, as a successful author, or as a successful banker and what the position is. Not what we are today is, because we could go nuts, especially if we're, things are not going well, whatever. We have to have that belief system. Otherwise, we'll put the effort out, and then we can we can pick one of them thousands of excuses out there as to why uh, we didn't, why, why we didn't make it. And so... When I was a college swim coach, uh, I used to tell my kids, and it was an inner city school, so I had a, it was a community college and uh, had a lot of kids um, who came from low economic backgrounds. And so one of the things that I used to tell them all the time was, you need to believe to achieve. You must believe to achieve. And that sounds very in line with your thinking and how success has worked for you, is that maybe you can't see that it's possible today, but it doesn't mean it's not possible in the future so start practicing believing. Is that what you you're said? Believe, you said believe and achieve. You know, we have a book. Uh, our chairman was W. Clement Stone, and that's the stories in there how I've become, you know, I'm in a town with three red lights, and I, and I get a job with uh, 350 million people. And I get picked to be the CEO of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. And uh, Mr. Stone was a billionaire and, uh, and uh, chairman of the board. And he's really, the, his money is really what got the foundation going and got the books published. He has a book called believe and achieve, which we have the copyright to. So, I mean, um, Napoleon Hill's most famous statement was what the mind of man can conceive and believe the mind you can achieve. And uh, that's absolutely right. But if you don't believe it, that you can accomplish something other, you can say to yourself, you can say, well, my spouse told me I shouldn't have even imagined I could do this or do that. And so I guess he is right. You know, like a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's simply because we didn't have a strong belief that we could uh, do it there's a little book that i read years ago and i can think about memorizing it but it's a guy by the name of victor frankel mm-hmm. he wrote a book man's search for meaning you probably read it yep. but in that book he said he was in in uh, also uh, concentration camp uh, for three and a half years and uh, he survived he said he noticed when people knew why they want to do something other strong enough they would figure the how, and see, and I think that's what's lacking in people. Uh, you know, the kid growing up, and I've heard it plenty of times. The kids going, I give anything to go to Harvard. One of the parents said, "Are you crazy? You know how much it costs to go?" When the answer, when the answer, what they should have said to them is, "You really, really want to go? Now we got to figure out how we're going to do it." And uh, and uh, and and that's it. Is knowing why you want to do something strong enough, and believe that you can, that you'll that you'll stick with it. That why is really important, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because I mean, why are you doing something? Else? You know, you're affecting kids' lives. I don't. You can have the same feeling if you're. I've got a lady who works for me. She thinks she can save every stray cat in the world, and I think she saved half of them already. But she's got a passion for it, you know. And uh, and if you have that kind of passion, you're going to make a difference. You're going to make a difference, ever what it is, uh, you know. If you if you develop that belief system, because the the desire has to come before the plans because if you had to have the plans before you get started, before you want to do it, you never get started. The first parts have the burning desire. He in his writings would say, 
burning desire was a starting point of all achievements because we have to have something that we really want to do. It's not going to fall out of the sky and hit us in the head. You know, we've got to have a burning desire why we want to do something other. And then we sit down and figure the plans, and the plans may not work. It may take longer. We may have to get our friends. We have to get other people to help us or what have you. But we can work that out as we go along. No difference if you and I were starting off to cross country in a vehicle. We know where we're going to New York City or where it is, and we don't have to know every turn off and have to know every stop for gas and every little thing that can come up on the way. We just point in the right direction and figure it out as we go. I love the statement Martin Luther King says was, he said, you don't have to see the stop of stars. You take one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, but... And doesn't it get in the way when people think, oh, I can't get started because I don't know my exact route to New York City? Well, that is that is a that, that's a lot of people, and 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 they fall into that and start making excuses, you know, and they and they uh, they uh, they 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 ten thousand of them. He'll said he learned more from studying twenty five people thousand people that failed than he did ones that was a success. And of course, in one of his book, he. Uh, uh, he uh, wasn't thinking Garish towards the end of it. I don't remember all of them. I should remember many times I read it. But uh, but uh, the, the, he, some of the excuses uh, for people not making it was such things that, oh, if I just get a break, I don't know what that means, or if I just didn't have this debt over me, and uh, and uh, if I just know all the reasons how I could do it, and if I, if I didn't have so many worries, I could do it. And, uh, and I've just always had bad luck. And uh, my family never had no money, you know, on and on and on. He said, I live in a, I live in a rough neighborhood and uh, just uh, I can't get nobody to listen to me. Nobody supports me, you know, but I, I can kind of condense it down was, was this is my belief is if you're successful, you don't have to explain it. But if you're a failure, your whole life is going to be peppered with alibis and excuses you're going to make excuses you you know you can pick up everyone you want to well they won't hire me my hair don't look good i got a little extra weight on there's going to be people applied for that job's got a better education than i have i did a fundraiser with zig ziglar one time and he lost him at a christian college up in pennsylvania and someone took a picture of it and he autographed it and sent it to me but i remember one of the things he said was and it reason it kind of fascinated me i started my life in the in the business world, the finance business, and as actually it was called a repo man, I was doing a collection, but uh, we, one of the things we did, we financed a lot of cookware. It was a party uh, atmosphere that salesmen would go in people's houses and they invite their friends in and they do cookware, and uh, it sold for four, five, six, ninety-five or something, and uh, Zig used to sell that. That's what he did. That's how he got started selling. And he, you know, one house, another, and cold calling, what you want to call it. And he said, when things got bad, he said, which sometimes was often, he'd start telling himself this. He'd go by a house and he said, yeah, that house, and people, they don't look like they got no money, so he wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he'd come to one, he said, well, it's a little bit late. They just one light on, so they're probably getting ready to go to bed. But he had to do them even when the husband and wife would both be there when they could make when they could make a decision. So, you know, what no point in calling them during the day when just the wife's home. And uh, so he said he found himself driving from one part of town to another, you know, and he just, he got in, in, the, in the habit of being afraid to stop. And he said he finally figured it out was, he said, 
you could be successful could be determined by the number of no's that you could accept. <laughs> you know, so what if nine of them knocked on the door and the tenth one bought? That's a whole lot better odd not knocking on on ten doors to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but making self excuses, seeing failure in your mind before you even tempt. Did he make a tempt out? So Don, you when you were a young man, you started out. It sounds like measuring success with money, and you were very driven. And when did you when did you switch over and realize that money wasn't success for you? <laughs> I guess I'm not trying to be funny. I guess after I got the money. No, <laughs> no, no, not really. You know, I started working with a lot of young people and, and some things I, I think just, I guess just kind of come to me. I was 20 some year old managing finance office. And I look around me and I got all the, I got people working for me. It's twice my, twice my age. And uh, they called me hotshot and stuff like that. The people in the business did because I worked so hard and I was, I was, uh, I was so driven, but, uh, I saw I could make a difference in and 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 instill some passion. I remember a contest they had one time, and they sent the instructions out, and and it was such a criteria of things like you got so many points when you got a new customer, and uh, when you got a we call them FBs, former barrier back on the books, and all these different criteria they measured the uh, they measured the offices by, and so uh, when they sent the thing out, they sent a catalog, and and it was was the stage where you know that you appreciated a portable television or a whole bunch of other things that, you know, you readily wouldn't have money to buy if you was a working person and not making good money. And uh, so uh, uh, when they sent the thing out, their suggestion was that the branch manager, which is what I was, would get 50% of the points that were accumulated, and then they would be divided up equally among the other people. Well, I see I had um, I had about eight people in the office counting me, and I said, now, we're going, first thing we're going to do, y'all have all looked at the catalog. You know, what we can get, we'll get points. And I said, we got the best office in the region. But now I said, here's what we're going to do is we're going to split those points even down down the, down the line. If we if if we get 8,000 points, we're going to get 1,000 points apiece. I said, y'all are going to get the same thing I get. So what I expect out of you is if one of you is just not doing his job, the other ones, you, you've got responsibility to see that everybody occurs or share, because we're going to be sharing it equally. I said, because a lot of the customers, I'm in my office, I don't see them out there. I, and I said, you can give someone your card, and, and when they come to make a payment at the counter, which most of them did, I said, you can tell them to send you a customer, write your name on the back of it, and when that person comes over with that card, they give them to you. I said, then we've got a new customer, which is a lot of points. And I said, that's the way we're going to do it. And so they got enthused. They got enthused because they knew I cure for them. And I, I guess I started caring for other people and thought that was the best way in the world. In return, I got what I wanted. You know, I got the success I wanted. And and I, I said, I know it's that old bit was that, you, you know, you can be successful if you don't worry who worry about who gets the credit for it. And so I never was trying to take credit for it and say, look how good I am. I got the best office or whatever. I said, we got the best office in the division. We got the best office in the division. And I tried to instill that to them. And they knew that I, they knew that I, that I cared for them. And I've tried to do that. I've tried to do that all my life is I never asked for a raise for myself in my life because I learned I was doing such a good job. I tried to protect everybody who was working for me. And I was in, I was in, Banking 38 years, I never had to ask for a raise, but I looked after my people. 
and they knew good and well, the board did, to take care of me because there was people out there that would love to have me come to work for them. And, uh, and I remember one of the board meetings, I, I took, uh, I went up to them and I, uh, cover them and I said, Hey, I'd like to give, this is a raise I give. And, and one of the, the old guys, his family had, had followed, had founded the bank. He said, my God, Don, he said, that's a lot of money. I said, jury, look, see how much we made. He said, yeah, but the pie is only so big. I said, no, I said, no, we're, we're making a bigger pie. I said, three years before I come here, you guys lost all your, lost a million and five hundred thousand dollars. I made ninety thousand the first year around the bank, and then I made three hundred thousand, then it was seven hundred thousand and was making a million. I said I said, We're making a bigger pie and and he used some choice words and said, Yeah, you're right. He said, I hate to admit it, go ahead and do what you want to but he said if you don't have the results next year, he said, You'll have to answer for it. I said, I'm prepared to answer. No problem. And but they took care of me. And uh, I didn't have to go out and look for a job but one time. My first job I applied, from then on, it was my reputation. People called me. People called me, and they solicited me and and, uh, and, uh, and offered, me, offered me jobs, just like those Napoleon Hill Foundation. I had a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, rental property, developing real estate and, and office buildings and so spring water, dry cleaners, a whole bunch of other things to look after when we sold the bank. And the other trustee says, Don, you know, Mike Ritt, he's going to have to retire. He can't travel. He's got health problems. He's been around forever, but he can't carry on, and we need someone. And uh, they said, you're the only logical one is out there. And I said, well, I thank you. You know how much what I'm involved in. But I said, I don't want to live in Chicago. I'll move the foundation to Wise. That's where Dr. Hill's from. They said, can you do that? They said, hey, I've done got his books. I said, all he needs is money. And uh, I can transfer it to another bank, and so now we're in the we're 13 years and 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 still and and still going. And and you have a relationship with the university as well. Yes, I've been on a, I've been on a fact is we had a quarterly board meeting today. I have a, I have a wonderful rep- uh, with the, with the college. Of course, I taught a class here 12 times, and I still go in and guess sometimes. But I'm on the board of trustees which is a governor-appointed job that I've been on, I don't even know how many years back, but it's a long time, just got put on for another four-year terms uh, recently, but I've been on it for a long time. I'm also president of the foundation board, which is the fundraising part of the college, and I've been I've served in that capacity for approximately 15 years, and uh, we have, which I'm proud of because our students, year in and year out, they graduate with the lowest debt load per student of any liberal arts college in the United States. That's amazing. And we're in supposedly a poverty, poverty stricken area, but we've been able to reach out people in the coal business and people in business have been so good supporters because most of the students that come here, they're first generation. In other words, mm-hmm. they wasn't a college year. It was a two year college starting in 1955, which was later changed to a four year school. So, People grew up without going to college. You know, they went to high school, most of them, and then they went to coal business or some other labor. And uh, so there, there are people like myself that parents didn't go to college. Heck, mine didn't even go to high school. I asked them one time, why'd you go to seventh grade? And of course, they grew up during the Depression. They said, that's as far as a teacher went. And uh, so, you know, they at age 14 or 15, the men went to, went to coal mines and got them a job. And that's all. That's all most of them ever knew. 
Dawn, I want to go into the power of beliefs because your book really talks a great deal about that. And I know that's the key message, I think, for Napoleon Hill. And so can you share with my listeners why the power of beliefs is so important in this journey of success? Well, to me, Corinne, it's an absolute necessity because it, it fits in all of those reasons of failure, not getting started, call it procrastination, g- giving up. Hill used to give, uh, he used to give, uh, give uh, uh, speeches and he'd ask the audience, how many times on the average do people uh, try something or another before they quit? And they'd holler one, two, three. He said, I asked you on the average. He said, the average is less than one because most people never get started. And the reason they don't get started is they don't have the belief that they can accomplish it. It's the same reason a guy stays on first base and never tries to make it to second uh, on his own because he don't think he can make it. And it's a, it's a, I said, if we had that same attitude when we was little, we don't know no better because if we had that same belief when we was little, we wouldn't, we'd never learn to walk. <laughs> Good thing we don't have that belief or that capability of having language in our minds yeah, at that yeah, time. <laughs> you know, a small kid, they, they don't know, they don't know what, no, I mean, you know, uh, little fellows will uh, have killed herself, but they don't know what meaning no means until some adult comes along and says, you can't do that, you can't do that. The, don't uh, go swim until you learn how to swim and all this other stuff to them, you know, and they limit on, you know, little persons are thinking, well, golly, they're grown, they're older than I am. They must know what they're talking about. And, you know, and I say, it's real easy to let your dream die die in you. And uh, and and at the end of your life, looking back and saying, gosh, I wish I'd tried this or I, 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 you know, I want, always wanted to go to China or I always wanted to go somewhere or another. And now, now I'm too old or, or, you know, don't have the health and what have you and, and so forth and so on. Again, making excuses. So our minds create prison walls then for what's possible for us if we don't believe. Well, we just accept which what comes our way. We're just like a tumbleweed out in the desert. Every which way the wind blows, that's the way we'll end up going. Uh, you know, and uh, and uh, without it, we we simply don't develop a, a desire and a passion and and start making plans on how we can get to where we want to go, uh, because we simply don't have that. We don't see ourselves. It amazes me that all these people can sit on their sofa and they watch all those watch all those people on TV or in the movies or whatever, and they admire them. You know, uh, to me, as uh, uh, we can admire people that's around us that's accomplished stuff. And not someone who's a, you know, who not there's anything wrong with the show people, but so many people they see it for other people, but they never learn to see it for themselves. And there's not a lot of difference between their IQs from all I've read. You know, most of us fit in a 90 to 100 uh, uh, IQs or somewhere like that. And it's not the difference in our IQ as it is in a in a belief system we develop and a passion for what we want to accomplish in life that. Uh, that uh, that makes all the difference in the world. And our passion isn't it driven by our why? Why well, yes, we want to I do mean, something? Why do you want to do it? I mean, you know, you know, uh, you know where it's, you know, you want to. Me, I want my daughter to get an education. You know, when I knew what I went through to get it, and I don't regret none of it. Um, and uh, I went to where I got my degree by working, and I went to Virginia management school because I was driven by money and then I went to Rutgers and got a graduate degree in banking but when my daughter was born I never had no idea uh, nothing except that she was going to college 
and uh, and uh, and I and and we, my wife and I, we prepared for it. I didn't know exactly where she was going, but I knew she was, and it was not a, if she was going or not. It was a matter of where she was going. And in the eighth eighth grade, in the eighth grade, she uh, uh, she come home one day, and and she Carol Dell, the old Green Bay Packer, who's a friend who actually works for me here at the college. Uh, he he played in the first two Super Bowl. Tremendous guy. He came to her high school and spoke, and she said, and he he was the first All American, first team All American at Virginia Tech. And she said, I know where I'm going to college. I said, you do? She said, yeah. I said, I'm going to Virginia Tech. said, Carol Dell spoke at the, at the high school today and said, that's where I'm going to school. This was the eighth grade. I never tried to influence her. I never said, well, now you ever think about this or that one? She was bounded and determined, and I guess because she was real good in math. And I said, what are you going to study? She said, I'm going to be a CPA. And of course, today she's a CPA. And of course, she's also added it on the line as a, and she's got an interior decorating business, which I, we call her Martha Stewart, which is, I think, was funny. She couldn't make up a bed when she was a kid. But uh, <laughs> when she gets married and gets her own house, she gets into that decorating, and people visit her home or the club she's in. They say, Oh, Donna, who did your house? She said, I did. Would you do mine? So she goes out and prints her up some card and says, says Donna's interior decorating. And, uh, so my wife once asked her, she said, asked her how much she charged. And, uh, and uh, she told, and it was, it's a hefty sum per hour plus based on the total job cost and so forth. I don't have a calculator. She said, surely Donna, you don't charge that kind of money. She said, mom, if you don't charge a lot, them people's got money. Don't think you know what you're doing. So I thought it was a, was a pretty good answer. And that's what she does. And she's got to travel. She usually schedule a job at Hilton Head or Wyoming or somewhere over summer. So some of the people that's in the pharmaceutical business that's got homes or ranches and, 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 and some resorts, that she'll go and update her place and she'll take her husband or son. Of course, the boys play golf and my daughter's working, but that's fine with her because she enjoys what she's doing. Fascinating. That's incredible. And so what do you think about her comment of if you don't charge um, enough, the people won't think that you know what you're doing? Well, let's see. I, I give a lot of books away, and there's two sides to it. I give books away and encourage people to read, but I could give every one of them away is, but I, I, like I'm doing a book signing tomorrow at the library, and the book's $20, and I think you can order it over Amazon for $13.94 or something like that. But, you know, the money's it's the copyright belongs to the foundation, and the, and the uh, proceeds go to the foundation. It's not me because I don't need the money. I did it to help someone, but if I handed them out, is I think in, if someone pays 20 bucks for it and I sign it, they're much more apt to hold on to it and more, much more apt to read it because I, sometimes I think is we have to pay something other to, re, to, really, to really enjoy it. To really get invested into it. Yes, yes. That makes sense. Um, you Earlier you mentioned that football player and how he wound up going into drugs. And in your book, you really talk about who you surround yourself with. And how does a person like you, who's a coal miner's son, become surrounded with some really powerful business people, investors, and Mr. Stone himself. And how, how do you go through those steps to get to where you are now? Well, first off, I love to read books. Now, I noticed one of the things when I worked in collections. Most people didn't have phones, and we actually, I went, actually went out on their home and, and trying to collect debts and so forth. And, and, you know, one of the things that just jumped out at me right off the bat was those people didn't have books in their home. And even today, as I guarantee you, you can go into a lot of people's home. They got three TVs. They don't have any books. They might have a TV guide and maybe a Bible, but they don't have books. 
And, you know, and I, I, I told somebody when I was speaking once, I said, you know, I think I've noticed something other. People it's well to do, and, 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 and the people it's not. People it's not well to do, they got big, big televisions and little, little or no libraries. And I said, people it's just, if people it's done real well, they'll be more likely to have a small TV and a large library. It's just where we place our emphasis at. You know, and I read the books and got inspired. And there's a bit in there on how I got to, how I got Mr. Stone was I was asked to, because I, you know, reputation speaking and what have you locally and talking to people about uh, this stuff and, 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 and uh, so forth. A historical society asked me would I come and talk about this uh, Stone because he's close by and most people didn't know who he was. And I think they were about, 20 people there, I guess. And I said, two things I remember about it was they didn't pay me and they didn't even feed me. But uh, I had to drive about uh, 10 miles to go to it, and it was on a work days overnight. And, but when I was going, I was listening to an audio uh, book uh, back when it was on cassettes, and it was Mr. Stone. And uh, so when I got home that night, I always keep a legal pad beside my bed. Sometimes I wake up and I have these crazy ideas. If I don't write them down, uh, I keep a pad there when some idea comes to me. So, but the idea come to me when I was dr- driving back. So quickly I got home, I got my pad out and I started uh, writing. I sketched out a letter and I said, I told them, uh, I wrote to the foundation. They were in Chicago and said, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Hill is born in this area. And I went out and made a little talk to the thing and I've read his books and so forth and so on. And I took it in the next morning to the bank. I had my secretary type it up and mail it out. Well, I get this letter back and they asked me to come to Chicago and I couldn't wait to meet Mr. Stone. You know, I talk about somebody, somebody the millionaire. Here's a guy's a billionaire, mm-hmm. and he's up in years. And uh, had lunch with him at the, at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, at the uh, O'Hara at Hilton. They some of the airlines he's connected with had a uh, meeting room there, and they 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 served us. And I met with the board members, and I remember him telling me. He said, "I believe you know more about these books than I do." He said, "You ought to be a board member." I said, what I got to do, Mr. Stone? He said, just come to the meetings and we'll pay your expenses. And so that's how it got started. But uh, the funny thing is, Gordon, I've noticed that it's unbelievable that people successful, if you get in touch with them, they're much more apt to help you than someone that's not because uh, I clued myself in a bit was someone helped me out. And that's what I said in the book is, I've learned from other people's, and so I want, if possible, someone to learn a little bit from me. And Mr. Stone wrote a, or Mr. Stone, Mr. Hill wrote a book. Um, that, uh, he wrote articles. He was a great reader of psychology. There was a man named Warren Hilton, founded the Applied School of, of uh, Psychology about the turn of the century, 1912 or something like that. And he had a doctorate degree and he had a law degree. He wrote a 12-volume set of books and Stone had read them, and they were exactly what you were talking about is our surroundings. He said, and so he wrote 15 articles, and I published them in a book called Napoleon Hill's Golden Rules. I typed those articles up, or the students did for me, and I wrote an introduction. I presented it to John Wiley, first publisher. They said, oh, we'd love to publish this. And, and that's what he talked about. He said right off the beginning, we're affected by two things, our physical heredity and our social environment. And the physical part, we can't change a tremendous lot about. You know, if you're going to be six eight, you're going to be six eight. Mm-hmm. If you got blue eyes, you got blue eyes. But that other part, we can do an awful lot about it. You know, we can we can move. You know, we can associate with different people because we come part of the average of what them other people is around us. 
Of course, that's both good and bad. And some people just don't see it enough. I, I read in a book one time, a man visits his neighbor in the country, and they were just sitting on the porch, front porch talking. And he said the man was a sportsman. He had a dog, a hunting dog, and the dog was laying there, and he's he's a groaning, you know, going, just making noises. He asked his neighbor, said, what's wrong with your dog? And he said, well, he's laying on a board that's got a nail up to it, and it's kind of sticking him. And he said, well, why don't he move? And he said, well, it's not bothering him that bad. So I think that's a lot of ways that people laugh. You know, it's like for an abusive relationship or, or what have you. Uh, they just don't take that risk because they think it's worse. There's a wonderful book by a guy one in Pulitzer Prize named Rick Bray. He writes for Atlanta Paper. He wrote a book. He covered the uh, Oklahoma bombing, and he covered a thing in Haiti, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for his writings. But he wrote a book. It's called It's All Over But the Shouting. You've probably heard that term. It's all over but the shouting, meaning, you know, the things about this end. And he, he, after his dad died, his dad was an alcoholic. And he said his dad would often be violent. He'd been in the war. He'd been violent. He said, go along for a few weeks. He'd hold a job down, and he wouldn't show up. And uh, he's out on the drunk. And he said uh, that he just wanted to write the story after his dad and where that came from. He went to visit his dad. He was throwing up blood and died shortly thereafter. And he said, son, it's it's all over but the shouting. And he asked his mother. You know, she never left him or anything like that. And, uh, and uh, her answer was, I thought it would be worse being alone. In other words, she just couldn't face the fact is that she could start over and make it because she always had that thinking that, well, he'll change, he'll change, he'll change. But, you know, she never got out of the relationship to make her a life of her, of her own because she was afraid of making the change, uh, you know. And I said, was in a, art, some stuff I wrote on, on finance, personal finance was, sometimes we don't take a risk but not taking risk is the biggest risk of all. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we have to take risks to grow. We can't keep doing the same things and expect things to change. You have to do something different. Even though it's uncomfortable to get up and speak in front of a crowd, it may be uncomfortable to call for the girl for the first date, you know, and, and so forth and so on. But you to get ahead and to enrich in your life, you have to make you have to make you have to make change. And take risk. And prior to you getting involved in the, the, the foundation, who was your support network in your 20s through early 40s? Well, through the, through the foundation, of course, we had Mr. Mr. Stoner, which I love. I'd wait till he sit down so I could sit down beside him because I prepared him with questions uh, from uh, one minute to the next every time I had a change through the mill and what have you. But, uh, but, but you know, the... Uh, I had numerous people. It's like uh, I have a wonderful mentor. I had lunch with today at the board. He's a he's a ex chancellor at the college. He's 93 years old, and uh, I mentioned him in a book. And he was a wonderful mentor. And uh, he was on my bank board. And uh, and uh, I remember one time. I don't even remember what it was, but something or another. Banking's a tough business, and I did exceptionally well. I mean, they wrote me up in the magazines. I was my my chairman said I was the best banker in the state of Virginia, and all this other stuff, and so on. So I know I worked my work. I worked hard, but I remember something that we was discussing, and, uh, doctor, um, and Dr. Spitty had been a, uh, he's a chancellor of the college for years and years and years and years, and he said he was a high school principal one time, and 
one of the teachers got in trouble. I think it involved a student or some other. Anyway, they had a hearing and so forth. And he said, he told him, he said, if you're right, I'll stand right with you. But he said, if you're wrong, you'll stand alone. And basically he was talking to me, uh, you know, cause something come up and they didn't understand what it was and so forth and so on. But you know, you got to admire people like that, that not necessarily, not necessarily give you the information that you want, but they give you the information that you need. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, you got to look back. I said, uh, I remember Queen Elizabeth the first, she said was, we can learn from others. She said, even a monkey can do that. So we can learn good things or we can learn bad things from other people. You know, it, it kind of rubs off on us. My mom used that term was when we were small growing up with other kids. She said, now remember, birds of feathers flock together. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean whether they're good birds or dirty birds. You know, you're influenced by people that's around you. And, uh, you know, kids that their parents smoke, they're much more apt to smoke and so forth and so on. And one that really gets me is because I, I've read some, I spoke at a abuse shelter for women up in uh, Indiana one time. And it said, believe it or not, that boys whose father abused their mother are more likely to abuse their spouse. Because they, they think when things go wrong, you're supposed to hit somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't sit down and figure out what it is. Or you just reach out and hit somebody. And that gets, that's supposedly, I guess, what's a attention off or whatever. But would you, you would think they'd want to do just the opposite. But they said it's a high degree of people who were, whose mother were abused by their father will end up abusing their spouses. Now that's that's so true, and then that's the habit that they've seen, correct? It's, it's, that's what that's what they see, and it's real easy to it's real easy to do what you see see being done. Yeah, is that because it gets programmed into your subconscious mind? Oh yeah, I got them little signs around stuck around everywhere. One of them on my desk and in my car is uh, it says, "If it is to be, it's up to me," and that simply means this: if I'm sitting here and uh, I don't think the money's coming in, or I'm not getting the products out, or something other is, I uh, uh, you know, it's 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 that's to remind me. And it it, it honestly, it uh, it's auto suggestion or you can use what terminology you want is uh, is is. Uh, it's a book I used to, by a guy named Hans Settler. He wrote a book that was very popular years ago. It called What Do You Say When You Talk to Yourself? And the whole basis of the whole book is uh, someone can walk up to you and say, Porn, you know, you just don't look good. Your dress don't look good. And you can say to you can say to yourself about that person, well, I'm dressed a lot better than she is. But then, but when you say to yourself is, you know, I'm not fit to be seen out in public. Or, you know, I, you know, I never make, when we start giving ourselves negative negative talk we're in trouble someone says it to us we can we can we can uh counter it real good but when we start giving ourselves negative talk and believing it then we're then then we're in trouble so i think it's important that we have those things out there i mean i could go on and on and on but but how things happen when my wife and i came over here in 75 things were going good i couldn't find a house that was suitable mm-hmm. I, I ended up buying a condo but we was looking at better homes and garden, and it was a it was a house on the back of it in Olympic stain ad, and we both we just kind of took a a, a, a look to it, and uh, and I said, yeah, gosh, it's going to be built in a wooded area, you know, that it's made out of Canadian cedar, so forth and so on. And I said, uh, I just don't know where uh, where we could get one around here, the way things are, and uh, so, uh, but any anyway, anyway uh, 
uh, I the I was second person in the bank, and they asked me to attend a bank seminar at the Federal Reserve in Richmond, Virginia, which is about eight hours from here. So I took my wife with me. I told her, you know, we'll, uh, because what happened was I wrote the stain Olympic stain, and I asked them, what was that house just a drawing or did it exist? And they told me that house that actually was a real house built right outside of Richmond, Virginia, in the area called Brandon Mill, just outside of And I said, well, what a coincidence. <laughs> so when we got through the seminar, while we started back, we went to that place in Brenda Mill outside of Richmond, and we found that house. And I talked to I talked to the realtor there, and he gave me the name of the architecture and whatever, you, and uh, the uh, and and the uh, uh, and I contacted him and bought a set of the plans. Well, here I got the plans. I know I need the wood lot, and uh, and uh, I couldn't find no land advertised or anything that would be suitable for it. And so I'm sitting there one day and one that. <coughs> Bank trustees came in, and uh, I just said to him, I, I knew he's in Italy, and I said, Tim, I need a lot somewhere or another, and I can't find one. It's with a lot. I need to build a new house. We're living out there in a condo, and my wife and I, a two-bedroom condo with a little space and with a child. I said, we're going to kill each other. And uh, if I don't get us a house, we had we sold the house we built in Tennessee. I said, to come over here to pick a job at the bank. He said, I got a lot just like you need. I said, he took me out and showed him to me as an acre and a quarter woody lot, five minutes from where I'm sitting, which is wonderful. But here's the thing. That picture of that uh, house on that Better Homes and Gardens uh, advertising, I had hit tape to the bathroom door when you open the door to get your get your, uh, to get your your towels and stuff out there every day, every morning or every evening when you, you see that picture of that house. Or, and then we're still living in it today. So I think it's important that we have things there. Of course, young, I, I did things like I probably was silly, uh, and I wouldn't do it today. It's like putting up a picture of a gold Rolex or, or, or a black Mercedes because you think it's got to come to uh, come into being, and uh, you don't necessarily make choices that you would make later in life. But in the early part, you're thinking, well, that'll show I'm successful, and because we measure we measure ourselves by things, what we've been able to acquire. But hopefully somewhere along the line before it gets too late, we start changing our thinkings a little bit instead of second making money but making a difference. So, Don, as we wrap up here, what are two takeaways that you can give for the listeners about how they can focus on the thoughts that are actually going to help them create success instead of focusing on the things, the thoughts that will um, keep them stuck? Well, I, personally, I think the First thing is is uh, is uh, a desire or find something that you have a strong desire for or passion, and uh, you know if they if they do that first, that's the starting of all of it. Because a lot of people says, well, I'm gonna get a job and make a lot of money. Well, if you got a job uh, that you hate going out every Monday morning, I don't care how much money it is, but that's a miserable existence because you can make a you can make a living at a, at a whole lot of things. Uh, was Eisenhower said, you know, if all you want to survive, you can do that in prison. You'll give you clothes, food, and a roof over your head. But if you want to make a difference, I think you've got to find something or another. As someone said a long time before me was, he said, if you love what you're doing, you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I think that's a, that's extremely important. And, and I don't think there's too many people fit into that because they, they don't find what they want to do. They can find out... Uh, uh, they they're driven by money or to please a spouse or please their parents. Kids think they got to go to uh, 
law school because her dad's a lawyer and they, and they hate it uh, or, or what have you. So I think that's the first thing is is deciding what they think they would enjoy, they can have a passion about, and then start figuring, thinking, planning goals and what have you. But somewhere along the line, start a plan to where they can make a difference in the lives of others. Like I got a brother just coming back tomorrow from Belize. He's a state farm agent. He's been down there two weeks. I text back and says temperatures 100 degrees and they're sleeping on the made up pallets on the floor, but they're doing down there with that's a church medical research thing. As I told Jerry one time, I said, yeah, we're both, all of us trying to try, but I said, uh, if we're not careful, we can leave this world and nobody know we're gone because when we're gone, nobody's going to say, well, he had a, he had a black Mercedes or he had a big old house or had this or had money in these, all these banks or whatever. I said, they will remember us not for what we got out of life, but for what we gave back. And so I think life is much more enjoyable when we start figuring out. And it doesn't necessarily have to be money. It can be tutoring someone. It can be sitting with old people. It can be, it can be many, many things that makes this our, our, our uh, motto is making the world a better place in which to live. And there's many, many ways you can do that. And I think you just have to pick the ones that you think you can do and, and enjoy and that you, can, that you can make a difference in. Don, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to have you back. Well, you don't know how much I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I, pre- and I appreciate your support. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wide awake.